now you know what you should do. Just get your butts into the pew. Yeah, this goes on. Is that, is that how you welcome people to Mass? Nope. This is the second installment of podcasts from my recent trip to Jordan. In the first, I introduced you to the community that the Jesuits serve. You heard the voices, the dreams, and the struggles of refugees. But in this episode, I want to dive deep into the story of one of the Jesuits living and working, at least as of this recording, in Jordan. St. Francis Xavier literally went to the ends of the earth on mission when the Society of Jesus was founded. Here's a glimpse into someone following in his footsteps. Welcome to AMDG. I'm Eric Clayton. I'm Father John Sheehan, and I'm the pastor of the English Language Church in Amman, Sacred Heart Parish. It's a personal parish rather than territorial, which means I don't have a physical building. I don't have to pay rent or worry about lights or plumbing or that sort of thing. I am responsible for Mass at St. Mary of Nazareth Church, Swifia, on Saturday afternoon at uh, the Frere Church. I remember many years ago when the founding pastor of my parish in the Philadelphia suburbs announced his retirement. He was much beloved, he still is, and the impending transition shook the community. Here was a man who had led by example for more than 20 years. He had built the parish community with nothing more than an old farmhouse and a few vacant acres of land. The area was not quite yet the bustling suburb it would eventually become, I remember at his going-away party, he was presented with a portrait that would hang above the parish chapel, a small but permanent gesture to his work. I remember how embarrassed he was. It was his hope, he said, to quietly step away, to continue serving as a priest in the diocese wherever there was need, but to allow the next pastor at our home parish to lead without the shadow of the pastor emeritus blocking his view. I remember how, in many ways, this surprised me. We all loved our former pastor. Why couldn't he continue on, even in a diminished capacity? What was the harm? I imagine that for many of you who grew up Catholic or who have been members of the same parish for a long time, this story sounds familiar. And in fact, it's a story that I encountered when I was in Jordan, too. The forthcoming departure of a beloved pastor, a grappling with legacy, a community's desire for just a few more years. Now, the Jesuits in Jordan are experiencing a big transition. What was a mission of the North American Jesuits, specifically the East Province in the United States, is being transitioned to the Near East Province, or the Jesuits that live and work in the Middle East, headquartered in Beirut, but responsible for many of the countries in that region. This is a good and necessary transition, and an opportunity for local Jesuits, for individuals more fluent in the language and the culture, to minister to communities that look and sound like them. But ultimately, this isn't a story about ecclesiastical jurisdiction, about church hierarchy and pastoral transitions, as interesting as all that may sound. No, this is about the kind of inner work, the spirituality, the personal freedom that allows a person in any capacity to recognize that they are just one worker in the vineyard, that ultimately they have to be available to God's larger mission, that following Christ means putting everything else aside. This isn't just for pastors that are moving on from one parish to the next. This call is for all of us. In scripture, we see Jesus respond to the rich young man. 
If you wish to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Father John Sheehan, the pastor of Sacred Heart Parish in Jordan, at least as of this recording, shared with me stories from his life as a Jesuit. But a theme we kept coming back to was detachment. And so when I was growing up, I developed this notion that I should be able to get along wherever I was. At one point in my life, I just stopped eating meat for six months out of every 18. Not for any vegetarian reason or animal rights reason. I just wanted to know that I could do it. I slept on the floor for years because I didn't want to be attached to a bed. I stopped. The only reason I stopped doing it was when I went to Nigeria and I discovered if you slept on the floor, things crawled on you. And that wasn't very nice, so I got back into a bed. But I had this notion that I should be able to give up anything along the way. And again, it wasn't particularly religious, but it seemed to me to make sense. And I think the idea of detachment makes sense because ultimately, whatever your religion, you're going to die and you're going to leave it behind. And so to get too attached to it means you get distracted from other things, uh, personal things, artistic things, human things, whatever. There are too many material ties if you let them, that will take you away from other stuff. And so I just, I, I, a lot of what has formed me as a Jesuit was already there when I entered. And I just happened to find out that it resonated with the Jesuit call. So maybe that's why God tapped me on the shoulder and pushed me here. I don't know. I remember being struck by Father John's reflections on his past attempts to cut things out of his life, seemingly arbitrarily. Why not simply wait for Lent, I thought, a time when you can conveniently package these moments of self-discipline into a liturgical season. At least during Lent, it was easier, in theory, to direct these moments of self-denial towards God. But having more recently read through Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation, Carita Amazonia, I am struck by the fact that what Father John is describing is in many ways what the Pope proposes as a solution to the socio-ecological crises of our time, simple, intentional living. Let me read from the exhortation. A sound and sustainable ecology, one capable of bringing about change, will not develop unless people are changed, unless they are encouraged to opt for another style of life, one less greedy and more serene, more respectful and less anxious, more fraternal. Indeed, the emptier a person's heart is, the more he or she needs things to buy, own, and consume. It becomes almost impossible to accept the limits imposed by reality. Father John shared a story, an extreme example to be sure, that really drives this idea of detachment home. When I was in Nigeria, and I, this is a longer story and it's a great story, but I will shorten it. We were expecting people for dinner and our gate man came in. It was late Sunday afternoon and said, ah, Father, the Alhaji next door, he wants to see you now. I said, no, he wants to see Father Ray, who is the superior. No, he asked for Father John now. So I went over. And my neighbor had a friend of his who was visiting. He was the assistant inspector general of police for Nigeria. And we lived on a dead-end street. We'd been having a lot of trouble in the whole neighborhood with armed robbers. And so the three of us were standing outside the gate talking about how the neighborhood could organize and work with the police to try to make things safer. And this Mercedes pulled up. And a lot of times cars would come down our street thinking they could get out of the neighborhood and they'd hit the roundabout and they'd have to go back. So they pulled up and stopped and three men got out with guns. Lie down, lie down, lie down. My mama always said, when a man with a gun says something, you do it. 
So the police inspector, and he was dressed in native dress, he wasn't in uniform. He and I lay down on one side of the road and the Al-Haji was on the other. And this one robber walked over to the inspector and said, I know you, you are police, you are police. And he put this large barrel pistol right in the guy's spine and he fired three times. He waited for a beat and he put the gun up against his head and he fired twice more. And I remember thinking, you're wasting your bullets, you got him the first time. I mean, right close in the spine. Rolled him over, emptied his pockets, then he stood me up, and I had the guy's blood and brains on my trousers at that point. And they're not wearing masks, so I figured, we're dead. He stuck the gun up my nose and said, take me into your house and give me your money. I had two older priests in the house, and I figured this was not a good idea. And since I was dead anyway. So I said, ah, now you, you emptied my pockets. We have no money. I'm a reverend father. I kept saying, reverend father, reverend father, like it's bad luck to kill a priest. Ah, no, you are lying. Ah, no man one die oh. This was a big saying. Nobody wants to die, right? No man one die oh. So then he roughed up the Al-Haji, and they got in the car and drove away. Thunkata, 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 thunkata. That was the day I discovered I was ready to die. I didn't want to die. talked my way out of it. But, and there's a whole follow-up sequence of stuff afterwards, but I didn't have bad dreams, I didn't have PTSD, I didn't wet my pants. And there was a sense, not quite of relief, but a resignation, detachment maybe. I, there was a whole list of things that I was not going to have to do. <laughs> you know. And I think that's really important to know that you're ready to die. So Father John has been working on developing the spirituality of detachment, of making himself available, as we are all called to do. But I think it's often hard to really appreciate the fruits of this work if we don't have a sense of what a person is giving up, stepping away from. I met Father John at a certain moment in his life, after many years as a Jesuit. But what was it like when he first began to wrestle with this call of detachment, of self-emptying love, of vocation? Well, to answer that, we have to go back. The first Broadway show I ever saw was Peter Pan with Mary Martin and Sir Richard. And at the end of it, I went back to my grandmother's apartment, and it was wintertime and it was dark, and I went off into the guest bedroom on the side and I cried and I cried and I cried because this beautiful thing was going to be happening and I was never going to see it again. And that was when I really fell in love with theater. Through no fault of my own, I was a boy soprano with a beautiful voice. I sang at Radio City Music Hall when, as a soprano, I was a soloist. I was a guest with the Columbus Boy Choir. And this was back in the days when Radio City was still a vaudeville house, essentially. There was a movie, and there was a stage show, and then the nativity pageant was separate, and there was an orchestra segment, and the organs came out from the side, and then they rolled around and did it again. And so we did like six shows a day or eight shows a day, whatever. And then we had classes backstage. I was an understudy for Amal and the Night Visitors, again, as a boy soprano when NBC TV was doing that live. I was a child model. I grew up performing and I loved it and I was good at it. And when I got to high school, I was better at it. And I went to the University of Notre Dame and I got one of the first three degrees in theater that Notre Dame ever awarded. Um, when I left there, I went to New York to be a actor. And I didn't have the burning desire that other people did. I loved acting, but as I said earlier, I got my equity card as a stage manager because that was the first job that made sense. 
And working for me was better than not working. So I worked with the Buddy Wagner Hell Drivers, jumping cars off of ramps. I worked for international talent pageants. Uh, I got to hear Kristen Chenoweth sing when she was five or six years old. I did a lot of stuff. Okay, so at this point, you're probably wondering, as I was, when the clouds parted, when the angels began to sing, and when that invitation to become a priest arrived in the mail. I have no idea. When I showed up, um, I was a, a late vocation, quote-unquote. I was in my 30s, and I showed up at the door of the Jesuits. And I am, by training and temperament, a contingency planner. I got my equity card in Actors' Equity as a stage manager, although I also worked as an actor. And so I'm going to meet this guy, this vocation director. And I anticipated every question he could ask. And I knew I was ready to talk about my prayer life and my spiritual life and all of that. We went in and had coffee and we chatted and he closed the door. He said, well, now let me ask you, why the Jesuits? Oh, never thought of that. The big question for me had been priesthood and I wrestled with that for a long time. And once I said yes to the idea of priesthood, I went to the Jesuits. They were very confused because I had never gone to a Jesuit school. To be perfectly honest, on that day of that interview, I probably could not have told you that the real name of the Jesuits was the Society of Jesus. I know I had no idea who Ignatius was. I had been on a couple of Jesuit retreats, but as a kid, um, eighth grade, ninth grade, and then later with a group of businessmen. There was a Jesuit who ran weekend retreats Thursday night to Sunday afternoon up at our big house in Shrub Oak. And he knew me because he'd visited our family. And he said, no, it'd be all right if John came. And I was the youngest person on the retreat by 20 or 30 years. But that was my only contact with the Jesuits. Now, looking back, I can give you all sorts of wonderful reasons why the Jesuits. But at the time, no idea. Hand of God. How did you end up in, like, like literally, how did you end up in the Jesuit vocation office if you didn't even know? I knew. I knew, no, I knew one Jesuit who knew me. I had been on these Jesuit retreats. I'd seen the scholastics. Our group always had, the Princeton group always had Palm Sunday weekend. We were there when Martin Luther King was killed. I mean, it was, it was one of those things. Um, so once I said yes to priesthood, I just went to the Jesuits. I, I never thought about it. And in fact, I was at a Jesuit retreat house uh, when I said yes, Manresa. We used to have a house out on Long Island. And I was on a weekend retreat there, and that was when I said, okay, I give up. And those are my words. I said, I give up. I'll be a priest. Ah, there was a sense of release. And you know, anytime you're, you're struggling with a question, there's a release of tension when you get an answer. It, it was more than that. And that peace has stayed with me ever since that moment, all during the process of applying when the Jesuits looked at me like I was crazy. The one-year process took two because after the first year, they deferred me for a year, even given my advanced old age. You know, Well, I had been in theater for many years, and a theater person in those days would have looked at my resume and gone, wow, great experience. A businessman would look at my resume at that point and go, hmm, can't keep a job. <clears throat> Jesuits of the New York province are much more like businessmen than they were theater people, and so they had no idea what this was about. So, but eventually they took me and eventually they kept me and here I am. So I'm fascinated by the Catholic imagination. 
this idea that there is something distinct and accessible in the Catholic faith that allows us to creatively encounter and express God in the nitty-gritty of our days. And here I had a Jesuit priest who was also an actor sitting in front of me. So I asked him, how does a Catholic imagination play out in the art you create, in the way you live out your vocation? The people here will tell you that Father John is really boring because he keeps talking about find God in all things. When I was in Nigeria, uh, I was there for 12 years, and at one point I had buttons made, bright red buttons with white, F-I-G-I-A-T, find God in all things, right? And some of them had it around the outside and some didn't. So people say, what's that? Um, I made a thousand of them, and they were given away in about a week. People loved them. And all over Lagos for a while, you'd see people with figgy out buttons. God shows up everywhere. One of the things I do, and I do a lot of shows. I have had over a thousand performances to my credit, sometimes in shows, sometimes in operas, but I've sung a lot of solo concerts. And one of the things I've played with for a number of years now is taking love songs. And instead of boy, girl, love, or girl, girl, love, or whatever, put God in the equation. And then listen to the lyrics. I did a show once. It was a wonderful show. Uh, two acts. Sacred songs and silly stuff. And at the end of the evening, the challenge was to see if the audience knew which were the sacred songs and which was the silly stuff. You know? Because silly is very often sacred. And God appears in lots of different ways. And so I have a lot of fun with that. But that Catholic imagination doesn't just influence what Father John does it also dictates quite literally where he is. I make the point that religion, church, at its best, does what theater does. We bring people in, we inspire them, we tell stories, we change their lives. And the words to Neverland, you know, you find it with your heart. It's not on any, it's not on any chart. You find it in your heart. You never grow old. You listen to the words of Peter Pan and you think about God. And they're inseparable. They just, you know. And that's what my life in theater has been. And being present to people, especially as a priest, um, you gain access to things that other people might not do. I sang with jazz at noon for almost five years in New York City with some of the great jazz musicians that there are. And because you're a priest, people talk to you and people tell you things. And you have a, almost an underground ministry, you know. When I was in, in, in Nigeria, every Friday, the American club had happy hour. Wonderful margaritas. I very quickly learned I needed to stay with scotch. But I wore native shirts, and I'd be sitting there, and a guy'd come up, and, you know, you get talking. More than once, you'd have a conversation with a guy, and somebody John, you're a hell of a guy. What do you do around here? And he said, well, I'm the Catholic priest. Oh, ah. Oh. And they start to think, what did I say? What did I do? But over the years, I heard an awful lot of confessions in the bar at the American Club. Long talk, again, more than once, long talk with somebody who had a problem and he wanted to talk. And people learned if Father John was talking with somebody in the corner, you left him alone. You didn't come and sit down. More than once. Somebody said, well, you know, Father, I, 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 I think I want to go to confession. And I was able to say, I think you just did. 
You know, is there anything else we haven't talked about in the last two hours? No. I would come to the club and find people waiting for me at the gate. Uh, Father, before you go in, can I talk to you? Sure. When I was in Kwajalein, I would go to the vet's hall or to the snake pit, which were the two drinking places. And the priest before me never did that. And they were a little startled. Father, you're in a bar. I said, well, Jesus said we should go where the sinners are, and they told me this was the place to go. <laughs> you know, people get to know you so that when the crisis hits, when there's a real problem, that's not the first time they've seen your face. So let me bring things back to this theme of detachment, because ultimately Father John has as many stories as he does, has as many insights as he does, because he's been in so many places. He's sunk his roots down in so many communities, and that means that he's had to leave quite a few communities. And that's not easy. Think back to the parish priest who may have left your parish, moved on, been reassigned. I asked Father John if he learned anything new about God in his time in Jordan, something that he would take with him to his next and future positions. Well, I don't know that it's anything I haven't known before. He has a weird sense of humor. Um, I keep reminding, I have been reminding people more lately, but he's full of surprises. I think somebody counted and said that when, if you go through the New Testament, the Gospels, the thing Jesus said more often than anything else was don't be afraid in one form or another. Second to that was don't judge, again, in one form or another. And I think we as, as Catholics are often guilty of judging God, that we know what God wants, and we've lost the ability to be surprised. And I think that this is something to be open. And we come back to detachment. It's sort of a recurring theme. If you were detached enough from your own opinion, and that's one of the things about detachment. This is a footnote. I'll finish the, the other thought in a second. It, it is not hard to be detached from television sets or clothes or cars or stuff. I mean, it really isn't. It is not hard to be detached. The harder part is being properly detached from people because you're going to leave them? Not, maybe, maybe not. I mean, there are professors who've been at one college for 36 years. When I was at Fordham, back in the days when there was a big Fordham community, there was one guy who had lived in the same room in the same community for 46 years. Now, personally, I don't think that's healthy, but nobody asked me. But people, you know, the students you teach move on. The couples you marry move away. The people you counsel in the hospital die. And you have the attachment for them. It's not that you don't have feelings. But at the same time, you know. And so some of the parishioners of Sacred Heart Parish are much more emotional about my leaving than I am. It's not that I don't love them. And all things being equal, I probably would cheerfully have stayed. I, when I was here about six months, somebody asked me, Father, 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 how do you like Jordan? And without thinking about it, I said, I could die here. What I meant was I could spend the rest of my life in this posting. But I could have spent the rest of my life in Nigeria. I love Nigeria. The president of the country wanted to make me a citizen. I could have spent the rest of my life in the South Pacific, in Kwajalein, on a little tiny atoll in the South Pacific, which is as close to heaven as you want to get. I'm a New York child, born and bred. I was baptized in St. Patrick's Cathedral. I love working in New York City. I could spend the rest of my life in New York City. I'm easy. I said when I announced that I was leaving, 
I often talk about Tony DeMello, great Indian Jesuit. One of the things DeMello said, you know, church, sometimes you'd say religion, sometimes you'd say church. Church is a signpost that points the way to God. But if you hang on to the signpost, you don't make the trip. And I said, and that's as good a description of what a priest should be as anything I've ever heard. A priest should be the signpost that points the way to God. But if you hang on to the priest, you're not making the trip. I like that image a lot. And I think it can apply to a lot of things in our life, our faith lives, personal lives, professional lives. We have to allow God to work. We have to give the Spirit enough space to move. And we have to be free to follow after the Spirit wherever we're called. What things are we holding on to that prevent us from that freedom of movement? What keeps us stuck in place? And where, with God's Spirit, do we believe we can go? AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Doris Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook via facebook.com backslash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Oh,